Ever imagine you could be mentored and guided by some of the most influential leaders in business? That's where 40 Minute Mentor comes in. I'm passionate about making business mentorship accessible to everyone. So whether you're just beginning your career or you're looking for advice in taking the leap and starting a new venture, or perhaps you're scaling a rocket ship, this show is designed to cover everything from the ground up in the next 40 minutes. Hello and welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast brought to you by JBM, a search firm that places executives and future leaders into high growth startups and scale-ups. Before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to tell you a bit more about our fast and flexible talent solution, SOS, where founders and VCs can tap into an exclusive pool of scale-up operators to help them de-risk senior hiring, plug urgent leadership gaps on an interim or fractional basis, or for high-impact projects. Since launching just over 12 months ago, SOS has placed over 50 leaders into some of the fastest-growing firms, and the solution is in demand more than ever before. So if you're a founder or VC that needs top talent quickly, a scale-up operator interested in high-impact roles, or a talent professional that would be interested in joining the SOS team, please reach out to info at jbmc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. Now on to today's episode. Throughout Series 7, we had the great pleasure of welcoming startup founders who are truly disrupting the industries that they're in. From revolutionizing the way we deal with death, giving retailers a chance to fight back against the likes of Amazon, to making financial literacy more accessible and supply chains more sustainable. Today's episode features some of the best category-defining founders that we featured in Series 7. To kick off this special roundup episode, we hear from Dan Garrett, the co-founder and CEO of Farewell. Dan shares how Farewell came to exist and the crucial lessons he learned from building a business in an industry that has been completely untouched by technology. So at Farewell, we're on a mission to change the way the world deals with death. And we started out doing wills. And I'll talk a bit about our particular approach to wills, but we're the biggest in the UK. We run right about one in 10 of all new wills. We then started taking on other parts of all the different services around death. So uh, we're one of the biggest probate companies in the UK, and we're the fastest growing funerals company in Europe. And we do something called direct cremations. So what we've tried to tackle is this industry that hasn't changed really for centuries, which is right at the heart of one of the most difficult experiences that anyone goes through in their whole life and to come at it from quite an oblique angle. So we handle all of the sort of technical, legal, procedural bits of it so that people can focus on the emotional experience of dealing with death. And I'll give you a few examples of what exactly we mean mean by that. So how I got into it, and again, it's quite a weird thing to do, like you said, was at the Royal College of Art. I loved going there. It's the most amazing kind of postgraduate university. I did this course that was split between... Tokyo and New York and London. And there was 12 of us on the course. They kind of brought together people from sort of science and design and business backgrounds. And everyone was really, really high caliber. Uh, some of the people that I met there are just the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. And when we spent about five months in Tokyo and we were working on this project, it's a, you know, it's a lot of kind of aging population type projects there. And I spent a few months working in a geriatric home we had this you know there were other sort of design researchers anthropologists ethnographers really really solid team of people who's basically if you boil it down everyone's speciality is getting to the 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 root of the biggest problem that someone is struggling with in their life and trying to find ways of solving it and what i noticed when we were in this care home environment is we completely ignored what i saw as the biggest challenge which is you have a bunch of people who know they're going to die 
you know, you don't get to 97 and think you're going to be springing out of bed in the morning. But all of the work that we did was just about dealing with the physical sides of aging, getting in and out of bed and up and down stairs and how you can eat stuff. And it's like, okay, fine. You know, by the time you're in your late 90s, you've kind of said goodbye to your peak physical health. And actually, it's about how you go through that final bit of your life in a really intentional way. And I think we completely missed the point of being there. So when I came back to the UK, I spent a couple of months in the death industry. And that was just very much the way that I worked at the Royal College of Art and the, the, the other people. I like to sort of get really stuck into a particular topic. So I sort of helped to organize 15 funerals. I got a qualification in will writing and got a, helped a couple of people filing probate applications as well. And just thought, just had this realization. It was like, this is the biggest consumer industry that's been untouched, not just by technology, but by any kind of customer centricity. And it isn't because it's macroeconomically impossible. It's a kind of $100 billion market. It's not because it's technologically unfeasible, as we've shown. It's because there is this kind of fundamental human aversion to talking about and dealing with death. And that, to me, is this amazing mixture of this crazy Dickensian, you know, Victorian industry. And, you know, you can look around, I'm sure you can picture your local funeral, your local funeral director and this really fundamental part of what it is to be human, which is how you deal with the fact that you're going to die. So I love the emotional intensity of it. And I love the fact that it really is one of the last great undisrupted things. The other bit of it, the, there's something called the Holmes and Ra stress scale. And it basically rates all these different things that you can go through in your life out of 100. It's essentially an awfulness scale. And there's stuff like, you know, going to prison, how bad that is. You know, getting married rates quite high in terms of its, the intensity of stress that it causes. Having kids, you know, losing a job. And the thing that's caused 100 out of 100 is losing a partner or a parent or a best friend. This is provably the worst thing that you experience in your entire life. And that's just true across basically most different cultures, times, places. And the response to it, the industrial response to it, is like something from 1820. You know, it hasn't moved with the times. It doesn't focus on supporting the actual problem at the base of it. It focuses on the legal and technical compliance aspects of it. So to me, it's, in a way, you could say it's almost like cheap of me in the, not cheap, but lazy. In the World College of Art, I spent all my time looking for something that was undisrupted, you know, and we really found it in death. If I was in, God knows how badly I'd be doing if I was in a much more competitive arena. I don't have the skills or experience to build a company, a fintech company that's going up against someone else. But I think we found our thing in death. And it's not something that really many other people work on. So we've been able to make huge strides in the products that, that we've built so far. I just love hearing about it because in, in some ways it's, it's such an obvious thing because it's so impactful to all of us. We all have to, you know, we, sadly, we lose loved ones all the time. And uh, especially in the last couple of years, it's just a, a tragic part of life. I love how you've gone about disrupting it. And I know it's been an incredible journey. So you, you're now a team of over 90. You've raised... 30 million series b funding round in 2020 and loads of awards and loads applaud it so I, I, I you know congratulations on all your success but i also know that being a, a founder involves not such great things so it'd be good to hear about some of the biggest challenges that you faced and and have there been any particular mistakes you've made along the way that um, our listeners can learn from 
Yeah, totally. We have obviously made loads of mistakes. We've also got loads of things right. So in terms of actionable stuff to learn from, one of the best lessons that I had so far was early on when we were building the company, and it was me and my co-founder, Tom. And we raised our seed round from Kindred Capital, uh, from Tracy and Layla, who were there, and Tracy's still the chair of our board. And they had this incredible sort of talent advisor, like people advisor called Michelle Coventry, who I still speak to on a weekly basis, who's just a complete volcano of energy and wisdom about building teams. And Michelle meticulously taught me and Tom how to hire people. So how to source, you know, and and real technical recruiting, how to do kind of like Boolean searches and how to use applicant tracking systems how to do, there's a hiring methodology called top grading and, you know, how to interview in a way that removes bias. But most importantly, how to get people engaged in a process to the point where we have, I still believe that we have a 100% acceptance rate when we make a job offer to someone. So, you know, a lot of this is, it, it used to be more of a buyer's market hiring. Right now, if you want a job in technology, you're going to have people biting off your... If you've got any kind of experience, you have people... You know this better than anyone. It's a complete seller's market. So, so instead of seeing talent as you know, a process to run through to screen out bad candidates, we got a complete masterclass from Michelle in how to you know, write really compelling job specs. Like we regularly get people reading our job specs saying like, okay, this is the best, you know, and we've recently done a couple of executive hires and I'll agonize over the pack that we do. It's the same as a pitch deck. How can I have an outsized ability to attract candidates that other people won't? How can we run the best possible process? And how can I make sure that when we, like I'll spend two hours writing an offer letter to someone that I'll read out to them and really prioritize learning about who they are and what they want in the process, not just, you know, do they tick the boxes of what we're after? So that was a completely revolutionary way of looking at talent. And it meant that we were always able to punch above our weight in terms of getting great people into the business. That was probably the gift that keeps on giving. And Michelle's got to be one of the best people in the world at that. Then another lesson, we had an interesting one recently. So I don't, I never, I never know where to say we made a mistake or we, basically, we tried something and it really didn't work. I don't think we were fast enough to find it out, but I'm still totally not sure how, what we got wrong. But so we did direct cremations, which is a funeral without where, where no one attends the cremation itself. And the idea is it kind of untethers the whole process from the traditional funeral landscape of, you know, local authority crematorium and graveyards. So rather than it just being, oh, you know, I hated my uncle and I want, to have, want him to have an un, unattended cremation, it's we carry out the cremation, hand deliver the ashes back to the family, and we help them go through this process of thinking about what the best way to memorialize that person is. You know, in the last few weeks, we've had people scrattering ashes on top of the South Downs and singing. We've had champagne and chicken nuggets on a beach, that kind of thing. Really personal, thoughtful things that celebrate someone's life. So that's what we do. Really, the whole industry is changing, which, you know, 3% of funerals were direct cremations in 2019. Last year, it was 18% of funerals were direct cremations and 24% in kind of peak lockdown months. Last year, we broadened out from direct cremations into doing all different types of funerals, burials, attended ones, because the major reason for not going with us when people got in touch was, oh, I was actually looking for an intended one. So it felt really user-driven. We were you know, assessing our market and we spent a long time building out the logistics and the positioning and the experience. And it's a lot more complicated doing attended 
funerals and it just didn't work. You know, the advantages that we could generate for customers from being online didn't outweigh the disadvantages of not being local, high street based. And it felt like we were making those decisions from a user perspective. And if you think, you know, that crossing the chasm thing, if you have that hump of you've got early adopters and you've got laggards and innovation theory is like, okay, can you cross the chasm? Is it just early adopters? Can you cross the chasm into the mass market? And I think we were too early. But it was interesting that people said they wanted an attended cremation and we built it and it didn't work. And that was a huge amount of effort, a massive investment from us, huge amount of time poured into it. Can you pinpoint what, what was it that didn't work or why? I think it's too much of a leap. I think it's too much of a leap. So someone who wants a direct cremation is inherently saying, I don't want a traditional funeral. And they're already on that early adopters end of the spectrum. Whereas someone saying, I want a more traditional funeral, is, a, is more of a mixed bag. And although they may be searching online, it's still a big leap to go, okay, well, I'm going to go fully online, which isn't what the market is used to. So the thing I think about is how could we have tested that faster? Because you get into this loop where you think, oh, is the quality of what we built good enough? And then you invest more in it and you're just, you know, you're just like trying to dig yourself out of the hole. So I think that was a good example to me of like a real strategy error or at least an error in how we tested it basically yeah i mean these are great examples and i think there are probably lots of people that will listen to that and take that on board and i also think just the piece on hiring which obviously so we know a bit about i love how thoughtful and intentional you are when it comes to hiring and that personal touch is is actually it is time consuming but it makes the world of difference and and unfortunately i think there are found is that it's obviously a priority tie. It's actually most people's biggest pain point and priority. But I think sometimes you just get in a rhythm of just it becomes transactional because there's so much to do and there's so many hires to make that you forget this is an incredibly important thing in someone's life. And so actually by taking the time to write a really personal and crafted job description and then deliver an offer in a very compelling way where you're personalizing it, I think that's why you're able to hire the best people and I salute you for that because unfortunately we see too often the the opposite. And I think as a result, a lot of great companies miss out on a lot of great people. And just coming on to something you said earlier about, you know, the size of the market you're attacking, you know, 7.1 billion in the UK alone, you know, and you've disrupted that using technology, which hadn't really been done before. So how did you approach disrupting an industry, you know, that you, yeah, I guess you, you knew a bit about, but what were you most worried about when you took that massive mammoth challenge on? Probably not enough. I just didn't know what I was, you know, didn't totally know what I was doing. It's the ignorance is bliss there, yeah. Totally. No, it really is. And lots of people have spoken about that in, in the past. You don't know what you don't know. So and it was a classic example of, I was at the Royal College of Art. The final project that I worked on there with Tom and Corraldo and Anton was, was the first version of Farewell, which was this really beautiful, very simple online will writing tool and we focused on one number at the beginning of it and this, this is like you know we presented this in the final show at the royal college of art it has eighty thousand people go to it most of it's beautiful paintings and sculpture and animation we had this stand where people were making their wills and we had people queuing up to use it so it was it was a little bit out of place but we've all we focused on was the percentage of people including personal messages and funeral wishes in their wills so the whole product experience was centered around that, not just revenue or customer numbers. And the thing that made me so excited about it was we got this incredible interaction 
out of the people who were using it. They were putting in these beautiful, unexpected things inside their will, and they were surprised by it, and they loved it. So I think it was a classic example of, you know, you take a different approach to a problem. And, you know, 18 months after that, we were the biggest will writer in the UK because we focused on the emotional engagement inside the product, not just the legal compliance. What an incredible story and what an impressive yet humble founder Dan is. So if you haven't checked out Fairwell before, I'd really recommend you do so. Next up, we'll hear from 40 Minute Mentors' first ever sisters to appear on the podcast. Founders Margot and Alexia de Broglie from Your Juno. Your Juno is a financial education platform bringing bite-sized, engaging and expert lessons about money to women and non-binary people. Margot and Alexia share what inspired them to build your Juno, why they're putting community first, and what they envision for the future of your Juno. With your Juno, we're trying to accelerate the closing of the gender wealth gap, and we're tackling the problem truly at its root, where we are trying to improve women and non-binary's financial confidence and financial knowledge. The problem appeared to me during the pandemic when I was noticing that all the markets came crashing down and there was a lot of interest in the topic of investing. But I could see that the conversations I was having with my girlfriends were very different to the conversations I was having with my male friends. My girlfriends were asking me sort of what a share is and how do you start investing, whereas my male friends all had this incredible crypto portfolio and they're all beating the market somehow, which... I don't know how truthful that is. (laughs) And I thought, how come there is this massive gender divide on the topic of finance? And then the more digging you do, unfortunately, the more heartbreaking facts you stumble upon. And we just noticed that the whole world of finance is still completely dominated by men and that women oftentimes still see themselves as these excessive spenders that are bad with money and that investing is a world that they couldn't enter. So that's when we decided to build the app that Juno is today, where we provide unbiased and personalized financial education. And we're building a community for women centered around the topic of finance. So they have a safe place to discuss this topic. It's fascinating because the gender financial literacy gap exists in basically every single country in the world. And it is sort of a legacy of outdated gender norms that we're still carrying in today's society where The man is the breadwinner and the woman is the one that spends on household items. And unfortunately, it's a feeling that a lot of women have internalized and therefore it is creating this gender divide in the way you relate to your finances. What I find fascinating is a study that came out not very long ago that tried to understand why is there a financial literacy gap? And what they wanted to test is, is some of the financial literacy gap due to a lack of confidence rather than a lack of knowledge of women. And so they did this financial literacy exam that they handed out to both men and women, and they removed the question, which was, I don't know. And that had always been present previously in other financial literacy exams. Suddenly, when you remove this question, women got 33% of the answers right more often than when there was the I don't know. And so what they concluded from this is that oftentimes women do know the answer and they do know how to invest or how to manage their money, but they don't feel as though they do. And so they don't have the confidence to do so. And that's something that we have taken as the foundations of Juno, rather than focusing on just pure factual knowledge. It's really 
trying to reframe the narrative that you're telling yourself and, and trying to reframe this sentence that we all say of, I am bad with money and I don't know what I'm doing into building this financial confidence and, and thinking, I've got this and I can invest and I understand the basics and that's all I need to know for now. Just to echo what I said at the start, I think we've been community first since the beginning and really that element of being mission driven and building a community around that shared purpose is what has allowed us to scale so quickly to 10,000 downloads. But there's definitely been loads of challenges around no. along the way. Um, <laughs> I think one of the biggest challenges that we're facing is the fact that Juno is a category-defining product and nothing like it exists before. We have to do a lot of consumer education around the importance of learning about finances and specifically for women. Why is it so important to learn how to manage your finances? And so it's a big challenge because first you need to educate the consumer on the importance of why they need to educate themselves. And then you need to actually educate them around finances. And that has definitely been quite challenging, even though times are changing. And I think the topic of personal finance is becoming quite trendy at the moment, surprisingly, <laughs> which we are very happy to see. <laughs> and then the, the second big challenge as well is that sometimes our mission is interpreted as being patronizing. If you say financial education for women on the app store, for example, it can often seem as though we are dumbing things down so that women can understand it. And so making sure that we're navigating that quite smoothly and explaining that we're not trying to dumb anything down for women, quite on the opposite, we're just trying to create a safe space for women to, to be able to discuss finances, which previously they haven't been involved in. So it's more about bringing more women into the world of finance rather than dumbing it down for them. But that is quite a fine line to navigate. I think one of the big focuses for Juno this year is product market fit. I think every founder bangs on about that. But I think, again, because we're creating a product that's never existed before, that's our kind of North Star for this year. Then it's building out a lot more content. So we have the fundamentals of finance at the moment on the app, but topics obviously like investing. And then some I'm personally excited about are crypto, NFTs, getting more women involved in those spaces as well, are some that we're launching as well. Yeah, I think as well, expansion into another country. Once we've nailed the UK, the US is definitely on the top of our radar as well towards the end of this year or beginning of next year. I can't wait to see where Margot and Alexia take your Juno from here. They've already raised a big funding round and have had lots of press coverage. So I'm sure the business will continue to thrive in the years ahead. Next up, we hear from Nicolas de Dufray, co-founder of one of Europe's fastest growing unicorns, Anchor Store. If you haven't heard of Anchor Store before, it's a wholesale marketplace and partner to more than 100,000 retailers and concept stores across Europe that are seeking authentic products and brands that e-commerce giants like Amazon simply don't offer. In this upcoming snippet, Nico shares candid insights into what he learned from his first startup, which he sold to Etsy, why he and his co-founders built Anchor Store, and why they decided to go against advice to shut down during COVID and invest in the business instead. As you might know, it's my second company, Anchor Store. And so we, we, we did a, a first company called A Little Market in, in the past where we, we actually got acquired after four years by Etsy. And so I think it was seen by a success by, by some people from, from the outside. And, and indeed it was in many aspects and many, from many aspects, but I, I felt like I was not a good, uh, a good entrepreneur. I made many mistakes uh, creating and leading this first company. So yeah, I, 
for example, yeah, this is a good, uh, good case where uh, I think I could uh, have done much better in the past and I learned a lot from, from this first founder experience. So we, yeah, we, we started a, a little market with uh, Nicolas Cohen, my co-founder, and Loïc Duvernay, uh, our CTO at that time. And as I told you, I was really looking um, forward to create uh, my company. And so I took some time off at Bain to think about uh, a project that I could launch. And we were like spending a lot of time with Nico thinking about ideas. And we wanted, we, we knew we wanted to do something that would be, uh, uh, would have a positive impact on society. And so, yeah, like while we were discussing, looking for some ideas, at some point we got contacted by a, uh, an entrepreneur willing to sell us his, uh, his company. And he was doing unmade stuff and he was like, needed someone to help him scale. And by discussing with him, we, we found out that he, he, he spent a lot of time, for example, and a lot of money trying to create an online uh, presence uh, for his uh, activity and his business. And it was a complete uh, loss of, of money and time for him. And so we, by discussing with him, we saw that all these small entrepreneurs, they needed some tech to sell their products. And that's how we, we came up with the, uh, with the idea of Anchor Store, which was a, so a marketplace uh, um, gathering all these uh, unmade entrepreneurs uh, to help them sell to, to the consumers directly. And we were m- like mostly present in, in, in France and Italy when we got acquired by Etsy. Fantastic. Fantastic. So now that you're on to your second startup, was there anything that you learned from that first experience that has really helped you sort of in the, in the second time around has probably expedited the journey from the learnings from your first experience? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good question. And as I said at the beginning, I think I, uh, we did many mistakes in our first company and we learned a lot from it. Maybe the two biggest ones I would say is uh, we did not hire uh, senior people enough at the beginning at a little market and it, we, we took too much time to um, yeah, to hire senior people with us to help us grow the company. And so we did the opposite at, uh, at Anchor Store and I think it paid off and thanks to you in particular. And, and so that's, that's the first big mistake that we made. And the second big mistake that uh, I think I made is uh, I was uh, coming from my consulting days uh, willing to optimize everything. Uh, when you are working for big companies in the consulting firm, you, you like improving by 1% uh, an area of the business is actually very impactful. But when you are working for a, a startup and trying to launch something, you need to be extremely focused on a few issues. And so I think yeah, I was trying to to um, yeah, to be too uh, perfect everywhere. And in the end, you end up being quite spread. And so what I have learned is to actually uh, uh, leave some money uh, on the table uh, to be able to focus on what is really important. So today, I, I, I spend my day seeing things that we could do better. But I know I have to let them go because uh, I need to focus on what is really making a difference. Angstor has been described as the anti-Amazon, as you mentioned, helping independent retailers and I guess it's online, but also driving people back to the high street, which is in you know desperate need of rejuvenation. Despite all of that wonderful stuff, that is a big and complex market, but it is also a huge opportunity. So yeah, what was the, I guess, whenever you start a, a journey like this, there's, there's lots of things to consider, but why did you decide now was the time? to take it on. And tell us a bit about that early start of the, the journey and how it came to existence. Yes, so that's a good question. Uh, actually, as you know, we, we are former HC uh, employees and HC uh, had a project at that time which was called HC Wholesale. And, and it was kind of the ancestor of uh, Anchor Store. At some point, HC decided to focus on, on its core business and to stop 
It's a HP wholesale initiative. And one of our co-founders at Anchor Store called Pierre Lacoste, he was uh, in charge of this project, Etsy wholesale uh, in Europe and helping a lot growing it. And um, he was like, keeping on telling us that uh, it was actually a, a huge opportunity. He was a wholesaler himself before, so he was seeing really the need uh, for better technology uh, and for help uh, for independent retailers. So we met a uh, few people in the wholesale industry in Europe, uh, sharing our ID. And actually, the, the thing that, has, that was really striking to me is the first few people that we met uh, to um, introduce the ID and get feedback, they actually proposed us to resign from that job and to join us. And we had no, nothing, and it was just like an ID that we were trying to get feedback on. So I thought like, okay, there is really something here. There are some big pains that needs to be solved. And that's, uh, that's what uh, has been really the driver for, for, for this new entrepreneurial journey. You've gone from strength to strength. There's no denying that, you know, from the very early stages of the three of you testing the waters with a few people to a 2 billion valuation, you've got over 500 employees and it's all within three years. So it really is remarkable and huge kudos and congratulations um, for everything you've achieved. It's never easy though, right? And, and you know this better than anyone having done this twice. What have been the biggest challenges in the first couple of years and how did you overcome those? So I, I think the first big challenge is always the same, is making sure that you find very strong product market fit. So that's always an advice that I give to any entrepreneur. It's like, make sure that you, you are solving big pains with a, a, a great value proposition before scaling. And so I think that was our first big challenge. And, and it took us some time, a few months, before we really found our product market fit and we really took off in terms of uh, of revenues, and actually at that time we faced our second, uh, I think, big big issue with the COVID and the first lockdown, where we we lost a, a significant part of our business, and uh, and I am actually quite proud of how we reacted to this uh, this second issue that we faced, this second challenge, because um, yeah we we I think at that time we, we we didn't know how long it would last, and and we were seeing the the, the revenues dropping and. And we, we, yeah, some, some people were advising us to maybe like shut down the company for, I don't know, six months, seven months, and then reopen it uh, when things will get better. And we actually decided to invest. That's, that's something I learned also uh, in the past is like crises are, are a great moment to invest. When everybody is afraid, uh, that's where you can also make big differences. And so that's what we decided to do. I think we were five, six employees when we entered the first lockdown. And we finished it, we were like around 20. So we hired quite a lot during the lockdown. And we, we were one of the only companies to do that. And we focused the whole organization on the brand side uh, of the marketplace because obviously retailers were, were, were not <laughs> very interested in buying stuff for their shops. And this decision that we made, that was a tough decision, actually paid off because when, when stores reopened, as we had focused the whole company on bringing a lot of brands to the platform, retailers, um, they had to buy to reopen their shop. All the trade shows were canceled, so they had to find new ways of working. And we actually had a great uh, product offering when everything reopened. So uh, I think this decision paid off. It was such a pleasure to chat to Nico, not only because he's a brilliant founder, but also because Anchor Store is one of JBM's favorite clients. And we've had a front row seat to their amazing rocket ship journey. Our final feature for this special episode is with another fellow JBM client. We hear from Sourceful's co-founder, Wing Chan, who previously scaled the Hut Group as CMO and CTO, despite being in his 20s. 
Sourceful is an all-in-one platform designed to make supply a source for good for businesses and the planet. An incredible firm with a wonderful mission. They hear from Wing himself on why Sourceful exists and how it's helping businesses become more sustainable. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about what Sourceful does and how the idea came about and and why you decided it was the right time to leave, I guess, the comfort of a a C-suite role at THG uh, and embrace the, the chaos and madness of startup life? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say is that THG was at the time and is still growing very fast. So I, there was nothing especially or very or comfortable at all about any, at, a, at any point in time. And, yeah. you know, I like that. <laughs> Fair enough. And ultimately, you know, going back to founding something from scratch at the very early stage was more just uh, something that I just couldn't put down. I just kept coming back to it and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And ultimately, that's when you have to still make the leap, but make the decision. And it was just an opportunity to work on something with my wife, right? And so that doesn't really happen that often. And so if you get that chance to, to do it, it doesn't work for everyone. But if it, if it does work, it can be magical. And so we decided to, to give that a go. And Sourceful is, a, is the partner for brands that want to be more sustainable. So we want to be the, the partner for a brand that is trying to become more sustainable as fast as possible. One, because we don't have time. Everyone is trying to accelerate this. And two, because brands are what we think is the way of actually changing consumer behavior the best. You know, we're going to talk about what things that people can do, but ultimately, they're still limited by the choices they have. And so we're really focused on helping brands. And specifically, we found that majority of the carbon footprint or the emissions are in the supply chain. So we're focused on the supply chain. It's something that people haven't really been speaking about for a long time until recently. But it's all about, you know, a lot of the energy usage happened outside of the brand's headquarters. It happens in the warehouse, it happens in the manufacturer, it could be around the world. And so finding and mapping those things out is, is a key way that we can improve things. And we're also starting with packaging because packaging is just a tangible contributor, right? Consumers are aware of it. You have so many boxes piled up. Most of it's full of air. And it's a big driver of emissions. So it's a good place to connect everyone together at the start. And you already had this uh, sort of first introduction to the circular economy with Prelove, a previous business you ran, I think, while you were at the, the Hub Group. So can you tell us a bit about that experience and, and how that kind of helped you when you launched Sourceful, how, how that played into uh, you know, the, the business? Yeah, so Prelove is an amazing business, amazing website. started before the year 2000, and I met the, the founder of that business. And uh, he ran it as a very small team for uh, 17 years. And it was the first time that I saw a business that was about saving waste. So there was this movement about upcycling. So taking things that were maybe unloved and making it into something new and exciting and different. And so that was very, very different to a consumer first lifestyle. And the second one was, was free loved, which is a saying that we started driving on the site, which is that people that didn't want to make any money from the stuff that they had, they just wanted to give it away to someone else who would give it a second home. And that was the first time I saw people outside of maybe a a religious or charitable setting doing so much for a community to help each other. And one of the first things I got was uh, a limited edition uh, bottle of port and someone drove all the way to the office to give it to me. And it was was like a newspaper edition bottle and I had it and had it in my office for, for 10 years. Probably wouldn't drink it, but I kept it there as a reminder of of community and the importance of that. And it was very early on in my career, probably in the first two years. Uh, I was 23, you know, and that business really stuck with me. And so it took me a long time to realize that you know that 
there is a business model in helping people to do better. And um, I've heard you say before that when when you found Sourceful, you were convinced you'd never receive any media coverage for building a business around something that wasn't particularly sexy, supply chain. But obviously, COVID has completely changed that. So I'd love to hear a bit more about sort of how how you found building Sourceful during COVID, firstly, a big challenge for any founder, and what it felt like to suddenly see supply chain issues making the headlines. Yeah, so there were, you know, there's two things we care about, supply chain and sustainability. And we saw both of those things in the news. But they were at the news at the same time, but completely different reasons. Right? So supply chain was in the news because COVID had disrupted it. And so people were getting their parcels late and the price of things was going up. So it was all about cost and delays and all of this chaos. And sustainability was in the news because governments were meeting and there was activism happening and things were changing. So they, these two things were happening, but they were never connected. It was never supply chain and sustainability. It was just these two big things are happening in our world. And so COVID was accelerating this uh, shift in people's working habits and people evaluating what they wanted to do. And so it was really fascinating to see that people had these two things front of mind but did connect them. So coming out of this, I still think we're very early in the journey of, of realizing that to achieve sustainability, we have to think about the way things are made, how things are transported, and what people do with them after they use them. So I still think we're really early. But in terms of hiring and building the business, it was much easier to talk about these things than before. Because if you if you had said five years ago, we're going to build something in sustainability, people would say, oh, you know, no one really will buy stuff. That doesn't really matter. And five years ago, if you talked about supply chain, they would be talking about e-commerce distribution or digital marketing. You wouldn't be talking about those things. And so, yeah, they're now things that people care about, but we still think we're one of the first to connect the dots and make that a priority for a business. And that's everything from us today for incredible businesses disrupting their retrospective industries led by inspiring and refreshingly down-to-earth founders. And that's only a fraction of the amazing 40-minute mentors we featured across Series 7. So if you haven't already, check out the archives for all the episodes. And if you're enjoying 40-minute mentor, please don't forget to leave us a review and hit subscribe. With all that said, enjoy the rest of your week and see you next Wednesday as we kick off our very special Where Are They Now mini-series, where we bring back some of our most popular 40-minute mentors for round two. See you then. <laughs>